0: Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world for the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we are joining you for our very special annual UNGA podcast. Every year I meet Richard Down, who's our senior fellow on UN affairs in a hotel room in New York to talk about what's going to happen at the annual gathering of all of the world's diplomatic classes, the UN General Assembly. But this year, is going to be even better, because we also have Anthony Dworkin, who's a senior policy fellow at ECFR, joining us as well. Richard and Anthony have just written a, a fantastic paper on three crises and an opportunity, Europe's stake in multilateralism. And this week, I think we're going to see multilateralism being advanced indeed, as well as in word as the Alliance for Multilateralism is launched at the General Assembly. But there are lots of other things on the table at the moment. Richard, why don't you tell us what we could expect? Well,
1: the General Assembly is always a diplomatic circus and this year is no exception. I think there are over 360 different multilateral events taking place in New York in the next week. But the two main themes are going to be climate change and the situation in the Persian Gulf. On Monday, Antonio Guterres is convening a big summit on implementing the Paris Climate Change Agreement. And I think for a lot of observers, especially in Europe, that's the most important part of this General Assembly. It's interesting to notice that Angela Merkel is coming for the climate summit, but isn't actually staying on to give Germany's formal speech to the General, uh, General Assembly, for example. After the climate summit, we get into the main speeches and Trump will give his annual address to the UN on Tuesday. Then the focus will shift to uh, um, Iran and everyone will be waiting to see exactly how bellicose the US president is towards the Iranians. And I think that will set the mood for much of the rest of the week. But towards the end of the week, we do also have an intriguing novelty, which is the launch of the Alliance for Multilateralism, which is a a new initiative from Germany and France, which the Germans in particular have been trailing for some time. They're bringing together about 20 foreign ministers in the UN on Thursday to talk about some new multilateral initiatives. And I think that's quite an interesting uh, signal of how Europe is continuing to sort of beat the drum for multilateralism in the Trump period.
0: So Anthony, uh, why don't we start with Iran, because that is a a kind of massive uh, story at the moment. A few weeks ago, there was hope that this would be the site for a big reconciliation between Trump and Rouhani and Macron. Started pushing this at the at the G7 summit, but obviously events in Saudi Arabia have have somewhat rained on that parade. What do you think is going to happen?
2: I mean, it's really been quite a kind of whiplash experience to follow the um, you know the trajectory of U.S. policy on Iran in the last few weeks. I mean, obviously for Europeans, Iran is one of the kind of central areas where a multilateral approach. Is vital. Europe, obviously, very wedded to the the JCPOA, the, the nuclear agreement with Iran, which uh, Trump pulled out of. And I think, you know, the, from a European perspective, a lot of what we're seeing now, the kind of escalation in the region, is the result of the collapse of that agreement and the return to a, a more aggressive approach. And so, really, the question is, as Richard said, how far is the kind of aggressive side of Trump's persona going to be dominant? Is he going to feel that he has to take some kind of strong action in the wake of the, the missile strike on Saudi Arabia, which the US is strongly attributing to Iran? You know, the US already had a, a policy of maximum pressure. And so it's quite hard to see where he goes above that. And yet he also seems understandably reluctant to order any kind of military response. So that's the situation, and, and Europe remains heavily invested in trying to de-escalate the situation and promote some sort of negotiation. So the question will be: Is there enough scope to work with that?
0: But on the last podcast, Richard, we were talking to—I was talking to Elliot to Julian from our MENA program—and they were hoping that Macron would would be able to appeal to the dealmaker in Trump, and that he would be willing to find some way of declaring victory. And obviously with John Bolton's departure, a lot of people thought that that might create a bit of extra space. That was certainly the language coming out of Tehran. Where, where is the balance of power in the administration shifted to now?
1: It's anyone's guess, really. Um, I think there was some pretty clear signalling from Trump and also from Pompeo around the time of Bolton's departure that president did want a meeting with Rouhani. The Iranians always seemed more sceptical because they have wanted concessions on sanctions before starting those talks. Ten days ago, it would have been a reasonable bet to think that there would be a Trump-Rahani meeting in New York. That option now seems to have collapsed completely. And as of this week, the Iranians were saying they hadn't even received visas for Rahani and Foreign Minister Zarif to come to New York, although I suspect that will be sorted out. So, Anthony is right. I, I think probably all we can do next week is wait for Trump's speech and try and gauge the the level of bellicosity in it. I imagine that assuming Rouhani does still come, the French will be working hard in the background to try and magic up a, a meeting or some sort of good news. But no one no one seems very optimistic about that that now, and it will cast a, a shadow over over all the discussions.
0: So what about climate? What do we hope for on climate? Well, climate,
2: it's, it's uh, you know, I think it's uh, obviously a, a major priority of the Europeans at this point. And I think beyond Europe are kind of increasingly a global issue now. And so it's interesting that it's going to be at the centre of this, as it was at the Human Rights Council last week. You know, many people think climate isn't even a human rights issue, but there the, the UN High representative was putting it front and centre. And I think what we're going to see is, you know, what could be a sort of model for an emerging form of multilateralism based not so much on formal agreements, but on a kind of coalition, including states, but going beyond states for target setting, for kind of mobilizing campaigns you know, increasing pressure on states to stick to targets and go further, set more ambitious targets. What well, I think what we'll see is an attempt really to kind of galvanize and take further this movement of attention and concern. And in that respect, I think it's significant that the, you know, the face of climate action at this summit is not going to be one of the world leaders who traditionally dominate Unger, but it's going to be Greta Thunberg, the, you know, the the face of civil society. And that shows, I think, that this campaign and that this kind of new initiative is one that extends to civil society, um, as well as states and also local government corporations and so on. So it'll be attempt
1: to sort of pull all of those forces together and give new urgency to this cause. I think what's also interesting about the climate summit is that it's really an example of countries getting together to do multilateral business without the US, because uh, the Americans have not been involved in preparing for this summit in any serious way. Uh, Trump is not going to attend, he's going to be at a different meeting, talking about religious freedom with Vice President Pence, which is clearly aimed at the domestic evangelical audience. But Antonio Guterres, Angela Merkel, a whole bunch of other leaders, we think maybe up to 60 leaders will be coming together to make concrete pledges on how they intend to speed up implementation of Paris. In 2017, 2018, most leaders and UN officials really didn't want to hold big events of this type because they were so nervous of friction with Trump. And they were so nervous that Trump could undermine uh, their work that they they thought it wasn't worth the risk. This year, I think we're finally seeing a lot of states say we 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 can't wait on the U.S. We we need to move forward at the U.N. on climate, um, even if Trump isn't engaging. The U.S. has not been part of, part of the preparations for for the climate action summit. China has, and I think that sort of tells you a little something about the way power is shifting in the multilateral system with China directly engaged in this process while the U.S. effectively sulks.
0: So we still need to talk about the alliance for multilateralism, which can be launched by France and Germany. But in a way, that might be a good way of opening up this wider discussion about the future of multilateralism, because this initiative is very deliberately being built as a North-South initiative with lots of different countries of different sizes from every continent uh, being brought together by the French and the Germans, they have said that they want to push forward on climate and security, of disarmament, humanitarian action, as well as uh, stability in cyberspace and strengthening all sorts of multilateral institutions like the WTO. And in fact, the UN itself has got an anniversary in 2020, so they're um, they're thinking about that as well. It's it's, it's quite eye catching because as uh, You've both said this is a, an example of, of Europeans taking the initiative, but trying to do it in a new format. And they have even got the US to, to sign up to us, and they're going to be part of it, which will add to its weirdness, given that most of the time the Trump administration is, is obviously not trying to build multilateral institutions. But why don't we use that as an opportunity to talk about the, the bigger paper that the two of you have written with very generous support from the Finnish government, I should say, Why don't you lay out the argument, Anthony?
2: Yeah, well, maybe Richard should start with the kind of the general diagnosis, and then we can move on to some of the specifics. Okay, so
0: there's three crises and an opportunity. In one minute, what are the three (laughs) crises the multilateral system is facing?
1: Okay, I mean, what, what Anthony and I were trying to do was break down this conventional wisdom that we were hearing a lot over the last couple of years, that multilateralism is in crisis. People have been saying that, but it's not always very clear what they mean. And what we argue in the paper is there's really three crises of multilateralism. One of the crises is one of power. The US essentially built the multilateral order that we know Uh, US relative power is declining. China is trying to get more of a leadership role in international institutions, and that is creating a, a lot of friction. Secondly, there's a crisis of relevance, A lot of the institutions we have designed in the Cold War and immediate post-Cold War period simply are not fit for purpose in the new age of technologies, AI and so forth. You know, international development aid, which is at the center of a lot of what the UN still does, is shrinking in importance very rapidly. So the multilateral system is not 100% relevant anymore. And finally, it doesn't feel legitimate to a lot of people, you know, a lot of publics feel that it's not responding to their concerns around inequality and other um, other challenges. Those are the three crises, power, relevance, legitimacy. The opportunity is that we actually think that in this moment of crisis, it's the European Union and the members of the European Union who are best placed to try and fix the multilateral system. In a period where the US is retreating, from a lot of international institutions. And while China is rising in multilateral institutions, a lot of countries are pretty nervous about Beijing's vision of world order. The Europeans suddenly look good. They have the diplomatic skills and the overall philosophical credentials, if you like, to stand up for multilateralism. So that's the opportunity that we identify in in this period of multiple crises.
0: So that sounds great, Anthony, but can you really have multilateralism in one continent? Isn't part of the problem that if the U.S. decides to blow up the Appellate body on the WTO, it can. (laughs) If it wants to block uh, decisions at the IMF, uh, it's not that difficult for it. And China, in any case, has dwarfed a lot of these Bretton Woods institutions by creating its own kind of uh, institutions like the AIIB, which have much larger lending portfolios.
2: Well, it certainly is true that if the prospect was of multilateralism on one continent, then it would be a pretty bleak prospect. But the argument that we're making, and I think to some degree the the alliance for multilateralism that is being launched next week bears this out, is that there is still a lot of global demand for multilateral approaches and multilateral solutions um, as long as this is done in a way that's kind of sensitive to the new disposition of power in the world that looks at the kind of new emerging issues. You know, I think there are a lot of countries that are uncomfortable with the kind of the US approach of simply pulling back from multilateralism in favor of a, you know, what Trump appears to favor a more kind of transactional approach. There are a lot of ways in which China is still quite invested in the multilateral system. Um, But a lot of countries around the world are rather wary of the kinds of values that China is trying to implement through it. Um, And so if you look in Latin America, if you look in Africa, Canada, Australia, a lot of Asian countries, you know, you see a real interest in preserving some elements of a rule-based order in the trade system, in conflict resolution, in these new domains. For instance, one of the areas that's going to be a big focus of the alliance is cyberspace. So what are the rules for cyberspace, for new forms of weapon technology? So there are a lot of issues which affect a lot of countries beyond Europe, where some form of collective action seems to be required. And the, really the challenge is to find the You know, a a kind of imaginative way of doing that that reaches out precisely beyond Europe.
0: So, in the paper, you say that there's sort of three things that Europe brings to the table. One is uh, it's not China and America. (laughs) Secondly, are the kind of resources and the skills it has within these networks. And thirdly, this idea of, of actually being willing to innovate and not just defend the status quo. And the Alliance of Multilateralists is an example of that, but you mentioned some other ones there. But you also, think, talk in quite specific terms about what we can do in different areas. And yeah, there are four sort of big areas on, on the agenda. Maybe we should go into some of them. And then it will also be interesting to look at some recent experiences. There there are a couple of big things which have happened recently where we can maybe see whether this is working or not. But why don't we go through your four areas first? I think the first area is trade. Yeah, so trade is,
2: you know, in, for, I think for many countries, trade is the kind of The most kind of obvious crisis of the multilateral system. And certainly for European countries, they're, you know, open, small and middle sized economies, very dependent on international trade. And here I think you see a, a coming together of two issues. One of which is this perception that China, when it entered the international trading system, entered the WTO, there was a kind of an expectation that its economy was going to Converge with the more market-based approaches of other countries. And of course, that hasn't happened. And many people feel that it's benefiting from a sort of systemic advantage of a kind of unlevel playing field because of the role of state owned enterprises and subsidies and so on in its economy. On the other side, you have the United States, which has launched, as you said, this kind of, you know, apparently all all-out attack on the dispute settlement mechanism that's the kind of um, heart of the WTO system, and it's not appointing judges to the appellate body, and soon it's going to start functioning. And so the question is, can Europe kind of be the bridge that provides a, a way of addressing some of the complaints about China's ways of operating enough to satisfy the United States and bring them back into the system to show them that the system can still work? It's quite a tall order because the challenges on both sides are pretty high, but the stakes are high too, and there is a lot of interest around the world, I think, in trying to find a way forward.
0: But ultimately, if it doesn't work. It will also be up to Europeans maybe to pick up the pieces and see if you can come up with some plan B, which if the WTO ends up breaking. So.
2: Yeah, exactly. So there are, I mean, already Europe is concluding a series of quite ambitious trade agreements with a lot of other countries, the liberal countries around the world, Canada, Japan, and so on, But beyond that, there's a, you know, there's a lot of thinking going on about how can we create a kind of fallback mechanism in case the appellate body simply breaks down and there are various ideas that have been floated. And I think if push comes to shove, they will be implemented. You know, whether the US plays along with that, I don't know, but we would still have a kind of rump mechanism that would allow the, hopefully the WTO to continue functioning in some respects.
0: Right. So um, I'm not sure we can go into quite this mad detail on the other three areas. But, Richard, why don't you go next? I mean, the second area is migration and human protection on Europe's southern periphery.
1: This is looking at the situation in uh, the Sahel in particular, where you already have UN peacekeepers in Mali. You have the UN trying to mediate in Libya. And a lot of the existing multilateral mechanisms just aren't working very well. The Security Council gets quite bogged down over the details of how to deal with Mali and so forth. What we're argue, arguing for here is really building on what the EU has already done with the African Union and other African organisations to just build a stronger Euro-African security cooperation architecture. To try and stabilize the Sahel. And we're also linking that to the question of better multilateral cooperation on migration and assistance to refugees, which is something that the, the UN was discussing a lot more in, in 2018. But we think that you do need and that there is an opportunity for the Europeans to work better with, with the Africans to stabilize the area to the south, which is something that our colleague, um, Andrew Libovich has also been writing a lot about for ECFR.
0: You say that in very kind of sunny terms, but thing which they were doing a lot in 2018 and then stopped doing, I think it was the UN Global Compact on Migration, which ended up toppling a couple of European governments. So Europeans weren't exactly uh, an uncomplicated leader on those sorts of issues. How can you see, I mean, this is an interesting question because it raises the question about whether Europeans are united enough amongst themselves to play a role on the on the global stage?
1: Look, the Global Compact on Migration became extremely contentious within Europe, largely because the Hungarians and a few other spoilers decided to make a public political fuss around it. If you look at what's in the compact, it contains a lot of pretty solid ideas for assisting vulnerable migrants in places like southern Libya. And there is a lot there, which, and I think the European institutions recognize recognize this, you can implement in a practical fashion without having to go back to all the, the diplomatic rompers. So this is really about sort of, you know, forgetting the, the fuss of twenty eighteen and just focusing down on actual operations on, on the ground.
0: There are two other big areas you talk about. One is new technologies, which I think is very interesting, but maybe human rights is the most kind of pressing because that's also an area where the US has, has completely exited from from a lot of the architecture and maybe does Help us understand a bit more what the world without the U.S. looks like, multilaterally, the multilateral world without the U.S. looks like.
2: Yeah, well, the, there's no doubt that human rights, I think, is one area where there, it might be an exercise in kind of damage limitation as much as anything else. Because the departure, well, not only has the U.S. departed, but we actually see the U.S. at the moment pursuing a somewhat different agenda on human rights. The Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, has appointed this kind of commission on natural law and human rights, which is developing a sort of slightly alternative vision, which is rather more religiously based, um, and many people see as giving rather short shrift to some human rights, like, for instance, rights to abortion or, you know, other forms of sexual rights and so on. And against that, you have China, which essentially is trying to use the UN system to scale back commitment to human rights in a number of ways. So it is a tough environment. It's a more competitive environment. But even here, there have been some successes for the EU. And last year at the Human Rights Council, you know, was actually relatively successful in some ways that showed how the EU was able to, to build a new coalition, for instance, on um, the situation in Myanmar by working with the, the OIC, the Islamic countries.
0: So on new technologies, Richard, there's a, that's a big topic this week. As you said, the French have been pushing for, to launch some, some new initiatives on norms for this lawless space.
1: Yeah, and this is an area where, again, a number of our colleagues like uh, Ulrika Frank have been doing more detailed work that we we borrowed from in, in this paper. Essentially, we're at the exploratory stage of trying to lay out norms for cyber security and also AI and, and killer robots. I'm sorry, I'm trying to remember what the... Uh, the right term for killer robots is, but it, it will do. Now, those are all areas where it's not clear that China and the US really want to establish strong multilateral frameworks for cooperation, although the US is actually working with the Europeans more on the cyber front. But by using, you know, using its economic heft, using its regulatory heft, the EU can sort of actually set out some of the terms for the way new technologies are used. And that's something which I think the European Commission and the External Action Service have recognized is, is a space where Europe has some, some leverage. So it, that's another, that's another thing that we're sort of seeing in the, the Alliance for Multilateralism, which is sort of using Europe's economic and regulatory power to try and set some agendas around emerging technologies.
0: So I took part in a private gathering with a, group of European ambassadors who are working a lot in the multilateral system and our discussions were all off the record but I presented some of these ideas to them and they liked a lot of your ideas but one of the things which came up in that discussion was a recent election for a slightly obscure bit of the UN system, the the head of the FAO which is the Food and Agriculture Organisation, which is part of the UN in Rome. Europeans seemed very traumatised by that Uh, and they thought that if your thing was was a positive scenario about a European opportunity in the multilateral system, what happened in the FAO was maybe a, a kind of dystopia. Do you want to talk a bit about that, Richard? Do you, have you did you follow that closely? Um, it was a bit of a shock to the system. In essence, what happened was a French candidate was running against a Chinese candidate. But anyway, you explain.
1: By most accounts, the Chinese very aggressively pressured some countries. I think allegedly made some financial offers to other countries to support their candidate. The EU, meanwhile, was hamstrung by the fact that the US wasn't backing the French candidate for a long time and was instead supporting a Georgian who didn't really have much chance of winning. And I think that there was a sense that this was a case where the Chinese just used their growing economic clout and diplomatic clout to overwhelm. Western bloc in the UN election. It's probably true to say that not many people in European capitals, or certainly in Washington, were really watching what was happening. It, you know, I think that the Chinese had a had a game plan. Uh, the Europeans didn't really have a good enough response. But it is a good reminder that if um you know if we don't sort of try to lead on multilateralism, then other actors will uh, will seize the space. And I think that's why yeah, a pretty obscure UN election has acted as a wake-up call for, for Brussels.
2: But it's, But I mean, the way you recount it, it's a, you know, rather similar to the incident in the Security Council when a number of countries wanted the high representative to brief the Security Council on the situation in Syria. And there was a procedural vote, and uh, China was opposing it. And again, uh, China won, you know, rather blindsiding the, the EU. Um, because it just took a a kind of more aggressive and competitive approach to winning over some of those swing states. So, you know, one could say there's a kind of, uh, you know, for it to happen a couple of times, it shows maybe that
1: Europe does need to pay more attention to these issues. But to to flip that for a second, and maybe to sort of conclude on a slightly more positive note, we are are also seeing cases where uh, China's aggression or China's obstructionism at the UN is pushing other countries away from Beijing. And there's been a fascinating process in the Security Council over Sudan this year. And, and you know, Sudan is moving towards civilian rule, possibly. Uh, the African members of the Security Council are strongly supporting that process, and South Africa is is leading on that in the Security Council. But China, which has good links to the military in Sudan, is refusing to support any serious UN statement of support to the transition. And as a result, we're seeing the South Africans suddenly talking to the Western countries, and you know, looking to build relationships with them here in New York because they have realised that actually, the BRICS don't matter, or at least the, you know they they can't expect loyalty from from China and Russia just because they're BRICS. and instead, actually, African interests may align more with with Western interests in that case. And I, I've seen a couple of other examples around funding at the UN. Where again, China takes a strong position, but actually by doing so creates space for the, for the Europeans because it pushes non Western countries, um, away.
0: Well, why don't we take that positive note as a good place to end the discussion? We have one thing left to do on this podcast, which is our all important bookshelf segment. Anthony, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? Um,
2: well, quite appropriately for this discussion, I've been reading the new book by a former U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Samantha Power, and she's just published this book called Education of an Idealist, which is, you know, she rose to fame as a kind of human rights activist. And the book sort of slightly presents itself as, uh, you know, how well do those ideals live up to the challenges of actually trying to pursue policies through the UN in practice. Although, you know, I haven't got that far yet, but some of the early work on the book is that she actually is not rethinking her position all that much. And that she still is basically sticking to a kind of rather hawkish stance on promoting human rights, just doing it in a slightly more subtle way.
1: So we'll see.
0: What about you, Richard?
1: Uh, Yeah, I also have Multilateral bedtime reading, and that's a book called *The Final Act* by Michael Morgan, who's a Canadian historian. But it's the first uh, comprehensive history of the uh, the CSCE process, the Conference on Security and Cooperation in Europe, which was the big multilateral effort effort in the nineteen seventies to ease tensions around the Cold War, and you know is often used as a model for what we might need to see in in, in the Middle East. Mike Morgan was. A friend of mine at university, I've been watching this book germinate for about 20 years and it's, it's great. It's a really good read, especially for diplomats because diplomats are the heroes of the story and there aren't many books in which diplomats are heroes.
0: Am I right in thinking that you, your first experience after university was going to work for the RSCE, which was the successor organization?
1: Uh, it, it is true in, uh, in Eastern Croatia, in a very nice wine producing region.
0: So you lived the dream as well.
1: Yeah, my, the, I, the OSE weirdly um, has played a bigger role in my life than than I would have foreseen.
0: <laughs> so I unfortunately can't really match even for the weight of, uh, of the things that you're reading. But I'll recommend um, Three Crises and an Opportunity, <laughs> your stake in multilateralism, which I think is the last word on the multilateral topic written by Richard Gowan and Anthony Dworkin with kind support from the Finnish Ministry of Foreign Affairs there will be links to all of these publications on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcast but for now with thanks from Richard Gowan, Anthony Dworkin and myself Mark Leonard, it's goodbye the researcher of ECFR's podcast is Jonathan Hakenbraas and our editor is Marlena Riedel. thank you very much